Today's episode is going to be different because uh, I'm flying solo. I don't have anybody with me, but I have kind of plucked some stories from the APRO Bulletin, a bunch of articles that I'm going to read for you. Um, It's, uh, yeah, it just feels, after the last three weeks, it feels like maybe we could decompress a little bit and... Yeah, just uh, take it easy today. Uh, I'm recording this on the 15th anniversary of my dad's passing, which is um, very weird. It feels weird. Um, But I'm trying to make today a productive day. So we're going to bang out an episode here. And I have... Uh, maybe like five or six articles from the APRO Bulletin from the, the mid, from the early to late 70s, really. And this first case is uh, is interesting. I kind of cross-referenced a lot of these through the uh, humanoid catalog, the Humcat. So it sh- these should be interesting. I guess we'll see, though. Uh, the first... Case is called Multiple Witness Case in California, March from the March April 1972 edition of the April Bulletin. Field investigator William M. Murray has provided APRO with a full report on a UFO sighting which received considerable publicity. The sighting involved four teenage boys, only one of whom, Daryl Rich, 16, has given permission to use his name although the names of all the boys appeared in the press stories. The four youths were driving to another friend's house in Anderson, California at 9 p.m. Pacific on January 19, 1972, when they observed what they later described as a, quote, bright, oval, blue-white light, end quote, crossed the road ahead of their car. There was a low overcast estimated at 400 feet. The light did not pulsate or flicker, and it crossed, quote, as fast as a jet and at our telephone pole height, said Daryl Rich. The light source made no sound the observers could discern, and they estimated its distance to be about 120 to 150 feet ahead of them. They also estimated it to be six feet high and three feet wide. Quote, it was very bright, Rich told APRO's field investigator, and lighted the countryside and the inside of the car, end quote. Mr. Murphy states that no other reports of the light were made, although there are widely scattered uh, houses in the area. After the observation, the youths, two of whom are brothers, 14 and 16, and another one, age 15, parked near the Battle Creek Bridge and started to cross a field to the creek when they heard a peculiar screech and saw a tall figure running from them in a stooped position. The boys claim that the figure, only 30 feet away when first seen, was brown or green. Okay, 
brown and green are two very distinct colors. Seems pretty, pretty hard to confuse that. Just saying. Uh, with no hair, but, quote, lumps all over the body, end quote. Some have proposed that the youths were planning an illegal salmon take and that a game warden scared the boys away. Interesting take. Okay. Got to get that salmon. You got to get out there and you got to get that salmon. The boys immediately left the area, took a wrong turn on their way home, and drove through a sparsely populated area. Along the deserted road, they claim, they saw three, quote, orange balls, end quote, in the sky, which followed their car and, quote, flare-type flashes both ahead and behind them. The story is wild. After a while, two of the orange balls touched, and as they did so, the third one reportedly flew up and disappeared in the overcast. The other two ascended more slowly and faded out of sight. The youths claimed the orange balls were as big as basketballs held at arm's length. Seems like an obvious kind of, you know, um, analogy here. They they were orange balls. They were basketballs. We got flying basketballs. They believed them to be about one half mile distant. Mr. Murphy suspects that the boys may not have understood the at-arm's-length concept in spite of repeated explanations. Later, they claim that yet another light, blue, white, and oval, paced their car for five or six miles. Daryl's father, Dean Rich, did not believe the boys at first, but he agreed to return to the scene of the humanoid sighting. One of the boys refused to return. Dean Rich took along a handgun. Mr. Rich also notified the Anderson Police Department, who in turn notified the Shasta County Sheriff's Office. A patrol car parked on the bridge that night, but saw nothing or heard nothing unusual. Mr. Rich claims that he also heard the screech when he returned with the boys, although he saw nothing unusual. Mr. Dean owns a welding shop, is a respected businessman. He plans to run for city council and is a pilot. Mr. Murphy conducted a thorough investigation, which included an inspection of the ground in the area of the humanoid sighting. Nothing abnormal was noted. One must accept the word of the boys or label the incidents as a hoax. Mr. Murphy concludes, quote, Neither the newspaper reporters, nor I, nor the boys' parents, nor local ranchers think it is a put-on, end quote. Interesting story. Um, if I heard a screeching humanoid, I'd be fucking terrified. But um, yeah, that's, um, that's the nature of the game. Our next case is from the May-June 1974 issue, entitled 1972 Iowa Landing Case. Field investigator Kevin Randall, who has specialized in the investigation and study of landing cases, has furnished the following data dealing with a landing case which took place in a rural area of Iowa on June 6, 1972. The lone witness, a 46-year-old man, insists that his name be kept confidential and, in Mr. Randall's words, quote, he refused to complete the supplemental form and was very reluctant to even talk about the sighting. Mr. T. Okay, I'm going to stop there. Um, 
He gave, he gave, he gave this witness the pseudonym Mr. T. I'm going to have a tough time here. I'm really going to have a tough time here, but we're going to get through this. Um, yeah, it's, um, so Mr. T just, just picture in your head right now, Mr. T he's out in a cornfield and he's working in the, in the cornfield. He's, he's tended to it and he's going to have a UFO encounter. Mr. T was working in the fields in the middle of that afternoon when his attention was drawn to the sky by a flash of light. He didn't pay much attention to it at first because he thought it was an airplane, but he did note its silver color and the fact that it was approaching him. As it approached, it was obvious that it was an unusual object, shaped like an egg and slowly descending into Mr. T's cornfield. Just prior to landing, Legs or a type of landing gear, quote, grew out of the bottom, end quote. And the strange craft landed gently in the field about 100 yards from the witness. A port of some sort opened on the side near the bottom, and then, quote, some people, end quote, got out. In Mr. T's words, quote, they messed around. <laughs> they messed around. Quote, er, end quote, in the corn for a while, then got back into the craft and took off. Not joking, that's literally how it's worded. They mess around. As the object took off, a blue flame shot out of the bottom and the legs retracted. There was a slight roar as the ship shot into the sky. The corn shocks in that area of the field looked as though they had been caught in a whirlwind. There was no burned area, but the vegetation looked like it had been blown down by an incredible wind. The, quote, people were thought by Mr. T to be about five feet tall and seemed to be wearing one-piece flying suits. From 100 yards, the witness said he, could see, he couldn't see much detail and he didn't attempt to get any closer. Mr. T said the object cast a shadow when it was on the ground, was faster than a jet when he saw it, but it slowed as it approached the ground. When it left, it was out of sight in a matter of seconds. He estimated its size to be about 15 to 20 feet tall. In viewing the drawings made by Mr. T, one cannot help but note the similarities between this object and the occupants in those uh, cited by patrolman Lonnie Zamora at Socorro, New Mexico in April 1964. It's kind of apt that Kevin Randall's making this assertion here because he has uh, done work on the Lonnie Zamora case, but uh, he's kind of right. It seems kind of similar to an extent. Mr. T's craft sports only three legs, however, and Zamora described four and there were four impressions in the gully where the Socorro object landed. Also, the size of the people and their clothing closely matches that of Zamora's. Although Mr. T said some people got out of the craft, he only drew two, so we can assume that there were only two. It is unfortunate that Mr. T was not able to observe more, but after two years, it is fortunate that he had retained as much detail as he had. 
The duration of that sighting was about 30 minutes, estimated, and Mr. T said that he had completely, he was completely awed by the experience, and he couldn't believe what he was seeing. However, from the first time he realized something unusual was going on, he did not take his eyes off the object and the occupants. That's an interesting case. Very interesting case. Mr. T has an encounter in his cornfield. And they were messing around. Uh, We move now to the December 1975 issue of the APRO Bulletin in a story called New Mexico Occupant Case. Um, I just want to say that uh, the occupants in this case, the the outfits that they're wearing is way too hot for New Mexico. Uh, I'll post the uh, the sketches online, um, and you can also uh, click on the show notes, the link in the show notes to get a view of what this occupant, what these occupants look like. But it's way too hot for New Mexico. Don't care what time of day it is, but. During the course of his investigation of the Walton case, field investigator Raymond Jordan obtained a lead on a possible occupant report in Deming, New Mexico, dating back to 1972. The case was turned over to field investigator Patty Morris, who submits the following report and accompanying sketch, which was done to the the specification of the witnesses. On a clear but dark summer evening in June or July of 1972, exact date and month uncertain, Mrs. Hilda McAfee, a lady in her late 50s and her elderly mother, were on their way home by car from Las Cruces, New Mexico, to Deming. Interstate 10 was relatively devoid of traffic as they clipped along at about 65 miles per hour, heading west. At about 23 miles east of Deming, the evening was disrupted by a blue beam of light, which shone down on them from what seemed to be a short distance straight ahead, and emanating from the same lane in which they were driving. The light was huge and blinding, and Mrs. McAfee prepared to swerve around an object on the ground just ahead. As she pulled around the object, the two women were within viewing distance of two men bathed in the brilliant blue light, but only gathered a quick quick view of them. They appeared to be of average height and rather stocky. They were clad in pale blue bulky quilted coveralls. Mrs. McAfee's mother noted that they were wearing wide belts which matched the coveralls, gloves with no insignias in evidence. Mrs. McAfee said that they were wearing dark boots, which reached the mid-calf. Both agreed that the, quote, men were identically dressed and wore helmets similar in appearance to those worn by motorcyclists, including a visor, dark, which concealed the facial features. The figures appeared, quote, rigid and not aware of, or, if so, unconcerned about the presence of the two women. One had his back turned to the to the women and seemed to be working on something connected with the object located above them, while the other was turned sideways, facing him, and appeared to be talking to his companion. 
Both were standing flat on the pavement, either beside or underneath the presumed object, and the blue light which shone down on them from a point somewhere above. At the same time, the beam of light, which had been focused on the two women, was still glaring at them, and followed the car as it drove around the men and object. Also noted were black rods estimated to be four or five inches wide located near the, quote, men, but no details were noted. The entire object was described as being obscure and no sound was heard. The only lights visible were the light from above and the spotlight, and the object was vaguely discerned as about the size of a truck and sitting high off the ground. Mrs. McAfee said she wasn't certain, but that they may have passed partially under the object in their attempt to avoid hitting it. After they passed the men and the object, the women looked back, but all was dark and no trace was seen on the tableau. They later, they later speculated that whatever it was had used the light to prevent a collision and turned it off after the women had passed it. Mrs. Morris concurred on this point. An odd aspect of this case is the aftermath. Both women suffered a burning, aching pain in their chests and arms after the encounter, and even in their bones seemed to hurt. Both ladies thought the pain was caused by the light, which was so brilliant it lit up the floorboards of the car and was much brighter than daylight. Neither of the women had ever had a UFO experience before and were totally unaware of them. Field investigator Morris was very impressed with the sincerity of the two women who were eager to tell of their experience. Mrs. McAfee is a landlady to Mr. Cheney Rogers, who is a brother of Mike Rogers, one of the six witnesses to the Travis Walton incident. It was because of the Walton incident that Mrs. McAfee and her mother decided to divulge their experience. Mrs. McAfee decided no one would laugh at them now. Other information about the site of the McAfee incident, terrain, flat, desert land, population, sparsely settled, weather, clear, warm, air traffic, non-noticed. Overall time of sighting, five minutes. Noise odor, none. So that's interesting. Kind of connected here. We got a little connection to the Walton incident. Now we head to the July-August 1973 edition of the APRO Bulletin. Strange aerial sounds in South Africa. Through the years, APRO has gathered a considerable number of reports of unidentified and very unusual sounds which apparently emanate from above, the source of which could not be located visually. Mr. Frank Morton, APRO's South African representative, has forwarded information pertaining to similar reports made to the press at Johannesburg and ultimately culminating in sightings which involved noise which called attention to the objects. First, however, we have a report from Mr. Morton about a close-up case from the Easter Transvaal of the 30th of March. 
A brightly glowing saucer-shaped object was seen over White River. Dr. Jean Marais, the district surgeon for White River, said, quote, While reading in my bedroom last Friday, I heard a loud bang similar to a gunshot at exactly 11.10 p.m. Seconds later, a yellow light flashed through the curtains, lighting the whole room. He said he rushed outside and saw a saucer-shaped object hovering above the house. It traveled from west to east and revolved on its own axis, he said, and changed color from a bright yellow to a glowing red and eventually disappeared over the horizon. All that remained was a thick cloud of smoke along the object's path. Dr. Marais reported the incident to the police. Uh, so, with this um, article, um, it kind of serves as a follow-up to our 1972 South African flap. So, uh, if you haven't listened to that, go back and listen to it, and then um, check out this uh, episode, because it is kind of a, a follow-up in, in certain ways. The sound, which was described as, quote, a strange, unearthly noise, end quote, was heard at about midnight on Thursday morning, April 5th, 1973, in Johannesburg. Many people heard the strange sound, and the times of the report bear out the fact that sound disappeared in a northerly, northwesterly direction. It was described variously as, quote, a very loud swishing noise a high-pitched whirring sound, which started at approximately 12.15 a.m. It did not stop, but rather seemed to move slowly away. Dogs in the vicinity became very quiet while the sound was heard, but started barking after the sound had ceased. One woman reported that she had thought the sound emanated from birds, thus prompting the newspaper to state that her report was, quote, an important clue. A man from Montgomery Park said that he was pretty sure it was the flight of migratory geese. The Johannesburg Star for April 6th stated that the man was probably right, that it was the right time of year. The noise was moving in the right direction and at the right speed and added that the observers had phoned in accurate reports. However, a Mr. G. Hem of Parktown North wrote to the Star. His letter was carried in the April 11th issue, and he said, quote, As a regular reader of Step Talk, a gossip column, which carried the initial reports, I was interested in your story about UFOs and the strange noise heard at 12.15 a.m. on Thursday morning last week. Well, I heard that noise as well. This is what happened. I was listening to SABC's all-night service, when above the noise I heard a loud whirring noise. I gave the radio a thump, thinking it was the culprit, but when nothing happened, I realized that the noise was coming from outside. I switched the radio off, and sure enough, there was the noise. It sounded like someone outside my window swinging something on the end of a string above his head. It got louder and then stayed static for a minute, after which the pitch increased a little and then decreased. It was now a little quieter, 
Again, the pitch increased, followed by decrease, and as it continued, it faded away. I saw nothing at all and could not offer an explanation. The noise was certainly not caused by geese, as it was too loud, too continuous, and lasted too long. Besides, I have yet to hear any goose or flock of geese make that noise. I am not suggesting that I heard a UFO, but I did hear something unusual. What interests me is that several other people in the area heard it as well. Another report received concerning the same incident came to Mr. Morton from Mrs. D. Robinson and two daughters, aged 21 and 17, from Montgomery Park. They gave the date as April 5th, but at 12.45 a.m. The night was clear and windless, they said, and they heard the object for less than a minute. Mrs. Robinson said she was awakened from a deep sleep by a penetrating sound coming toward the house from the south. Unable to compare it with everyday sounds, she described it as penetrating, vibrating, pulsing sound which was very eerie. After she heard it, she went back to sleep. Her 21-year-old daughter was in the kitchen at the time, and when she heard the sound, she attempted to locate the source through the window. Seeing nothing, she went outside and saw a, quote, slit of light, end quote, passing overhead and disappearing in a northerly direction. She said it was a, quote, slit of light, end quote, and the size of her middle finger at arm's length went over the house and that it was a reddish-orange in color. The younger daughter was in bed, heard the sound, but saw nothing as she didn't get up. The girls told their mother the next day and learned that she had also, that she had heard it also. During the sighting, the dog had become agitated, though it made no noise, and followed the daughter outside and looked up at the object. At Bulawayo, Rhodesia, on April 9, 1973, two Bulawayo policemen sighted a red, boomerang-shaped UFO at 3.50 a.m. S.O. Alastair Mumsen and P.O. Malcolm Calloway were on a duty near Bulawayo Theater when they saw the object, which they said was comprised of a row of dull red lights. They said they watched it for half a minute, whereupon it went out of sight. Then, eight minutes later, it showed up again. It moved very fast and took only one and a half minutes to cross the sky and drop out of sight, said P.O. Calloway. A possible landing case was reported in Queenstown, in the Eastern Cape, and took place at 3.30 to 4 a.m. on April 29, 1973. Mr. and Mrs. D. Kruger were woken by a droning sound similar to a propeller-driven aircraft. However, it sounded unusual to them, and at the same time, a bright light shone onto their bedroom curtains for approximately five minutes. After the light went out, suddenly, there was silence and neither of them could go back to sleep. Mr. Kruger said that he felt distinctly uneasy, quote, the feeling one has in a haunted house, end quote. 
Unable to get to sleep, Kruger got up, made tea, and stayed up the rest of the morning. However, although he knew something strange had happened, Kruger did not even peep through the curtains to locate the source of the light. Nothing more was thought of the event until the afternoon when Mrs. Kruger noticed burn marks on the lawn and pillar while watering the garden. As they, the marks, hadn't been there before and appeared in the right position to have been caused uh to have caused the light through their curtains, they immediately connected them with the incident of that morning. There were four, quote, pad marks, each measuring 23 by 15 centimeters, which formed a regular 3 by 1.5 meters lying parallel to the house and about 4.5 meters from it. No depression was evident, and the grass in the center of the marks was not burned. The porch pillar close by was scorched. On the assumption that a UFO had landed, Morton asked Mr. Kruger why he personally thought it had landed in his garden, and Kruger replied that perhaps it was because his was the only garden in the street. He lives in the center of town. That he had an open lawn suitable, and that perhaps the large birdbath with decorative concrete gnome was of some interest. I dig that UFOs are interested in concrete gnomes. You know, maybe they do dig the lawn gnomes. Maybe they are lawn gnomes. Maybe they're related to them. Who who knows? But I, I dig that. I dig that sentence right there. Mr. Morton found Mr. and Mrs. Kruger to be serious, sober individuals and not at all, quote, UFO buffs. He further makes a most interesting comment, quote, this apparent inexplicable lethargy or unconscious reluctance on the part of the people in the face of an unusual occurrence, UFO, to make even a cursory observation or investigation appears to me to be possibly significant. Although I can't think of specific cases offhand to illustrate this, I can recollect reading many cases in which this malady seems to be evident. It may be that people are innately reluctant to investigate the unnatural, or possibly, as I am inclined to suspect, in at least some cases, an exterior source influences them to this effect. End quote. So yeah, interesting kind of follow-up set of sightings to what happened in 72. I uh, found that interesting when I pulled it. Also, I think that one, last one, was, was it in the July? Yeah, July, August 1973. We're, uh, we're going to continue on with uh, the July, August edition. And um, the article titled UFOs in Southern Wisconsin by Richard Hyden. Following a letter of mine to the editor of the Whitewater, Wisconsin Register, inquiring if any UFOs had been seen in the area, I received a reply. I received in reply a letter postmarked February 22nd, 1973, from a lady called Mrs. Kent. This is how I learned of the sightings made by her family, and in particular of the sighting made on December 31st by her nine-year-old son, Mark. After Mrs. Kent's first letter, several more followed, and one Saturday afternoon I called her. 
the conversation was tape recorded. The information given below is based primarily on these contacts. Mr. and Mrs. Kent and their six children live on a farm in the area of the Kettle Moraine State Forest in northern Walworth County, southern Wisconsin. High-tension wires run one-quarter mile to the north of their property, and it is here that they have frequently seen red lights. The lights are seen in the late afternoon around twilight. Unlike the helicopters, which go along above the lines um, approximately monthly, checking for faults in the wires, these lights are completely silent. Those sightings have been made here the past few months. However, a long period of rainy weather coupled with flu and pneumonia in the family and the suicide of a close family friend have not allowed the Kents much time to skywatch. As far as I know, the Kents are the only ones who have seen these lights. I wrote to a gentleman who lives near nearer the wires than do the Kents, but on the other side, and he indicated that he has never seen them. He suggested that his neighbors might be seeing the airplane which regularly passes by from west to east around midnight. As I had not specified to him the time of the sightings, this was reasonable this was a reasonable suggestion to make, though it still leaves us wondering what it is that the Kents see. Mr. Kent is the skeptic of the family, though his wife and children are not fanatics by any means, as their knowledge of UFOs consists mainly of what they read in the newspapers. He says that the lights are probably distant airplanes, or perhaps balloons. Mark's sighting of Sunday, December 31st, 1972, cannot possibly be, quote, explained away as either of these things, however. He and his two brothers, 8-year-old Albert and 10-year-old Glenn, were outside sledding. It was about 2 p.m. and the sun was shining. Albert and Glenn were near the house in the pines on the edge of the state forest, and Mark was sledding on the hill behind the barn. With Mark was the family pet, a German shepherd. Mark heard a whistling sound, resembling the sound of an object falling through the air. He looked up and in about five seconds located what was making the sound. About 90 rods, 1,485 feet away. Okay, who's measuring in rods? I'm sorry, but no, this, this is not... This isn't the Bible. Sorry. Like, what the hell? About 90 rods, or 1,485 feet away, to the north-northwest, there were three shiny silvery objects shaped like hamburgers. Now we're talking, that's my kind of UFO. Mark couldn't believe what he was seeing. The objects, which were stationary during the entire sighting, were arranged in step-like formation, uh, kind of similar to um, the way that Kenneth Arnold described the uh, saucers that he saw in June of 47. Um, they were in uh, echelon formation, which is kind of uh, a step pattern, basically. So, um, Except I think Kenneth Arnold's UFOs were in a reverse step formation. So, 
The lowest one on the left was about 20 to 25 feet above the ground and seemed to be the closest as it appeared a larger than the others. At the apparent distance of 90 rods, <laughs> stupid, the UFO seemed to be about 15 feet across. I should point out here that Mark has sight in only one eye and therefore really had no way to accurately judge the distance to the objects. So the UFOs could have been larger if they were farther away than he thought, or smaller if they were closer. Each UFO had a row of boxes around the circumference jutting out from the object. All three objects were identical, except for a couple of distinguishing features on the lower object. First of all, this one had a red light, which moved from box to box in a direction from right to left, staying for about one second in each of the, in each of the approximately 15 boxes visible on the near side of the object. Except when a box was lit up, the boxes were shiny. Another characteristic unique to the lower UFO was what appeared to be a cracked mirror bordered in black sticking out toward Mark from the upper left side of the object. Mark had the strong feeling that it was taking pictures of him. This is one of the most interesting aspects of this phenomenon to me, is when people have a fear or believe that a UFO is taking pictures of them. Like, I've, I've, I've seen this before in other cases. I forget... Um, I think it was the Rosalotti case from the Euphonomes episode. She literally thought the the beings were going to take a picture of them. Where that fe that fear seems completely unique, or that idea just seems completely unique. Where does that come from? But I digress. Though they did not see the objects, both Glenn and Albert heard the whistling sound, as did the dog started howling. Mark is not sure if the dog saw the objects or not, though it certainly did hear them. All three boys ran inside to tell their mother to come out to have a look, but she dismissed it as being just helicopters, and when they came back outside, the objects were gone. A couple of months later, at 8 p.m., March 20th, 1973, Mrs. Kent and Albert were driving home from town when they saw an orange object brighter and bigger than a star, just above the horizon to the north. As they were in a hurry with something for Mr. Kent, they did not stop and look, and after traveling about two miles, it disappeared. When they arrived home, they looked in the sky for it, but without success. Mrs. Kent also told me that about January 20th, 1973, a neighbor was washing her face by the window at 4.30 p.m., shortly before sunset, and saw outside a huge glowing orange ball. Its apparent size was between that of an airplane and that of the moon. Unfortunately, by the time she was able to put, on, put her glasses on, the thing had gone. So far, I have not been able to contact the witness personally. Then, about 1943, I find it interesting that like they keep shifting like measurements here. Stick with one measurement, man. 
Then, at about 1943, Mrs. Kent's mother saw a shiny silver object up in the sky, and it was straight up and down, and it was soundless. And she said that she often thinks of that. And what was that? Like the two earlier experiences, this one also took place near Palmyra, Jefferson County. A few miles west of here, at Lake Koshikong, I probably butchered that and I apologize, but, uh, you know. In the southwestern corner of the county, there was a flap in the spring of 1971. Numerous people saw red balls, quote, they had a regular show of them over the lake, Mrs. Kent told me. Ten years ago, there stopped at Mrs. Kent's father's house a man requesting a gun to shoot, quote, the strangest-looking creature he had ever seen in his life, end quote. As her father did not give him the gun, nor did he follow the man back to the place by the edge of the woods where he had seen the creature, we have no details whatsoever of this incident other than the few which remain to tantalize us. Mrs. Kent has said several times, both by letter and on the phone, that she is telling, quote, just the truth as I know it, end quote. And I believe her. One letter concludes, quote, I have stressed to the children over and over again, and Al, Mr. Kent, RWH, has too, to tell the truth right or wrong, to tell it, like it was, and let the chips fall where they may. She wrote to me wanting to be helpful, not knowing whom else to contact, and has invited me to visit her and her family this summer, to perhaps see the lights for myself. If anything of interest should develop from this anticipated visit, full details will be made available to APRO. As far as I know, no other details were made uh, to APRO. And now we move to the July-August 1972 issue of the APRO Bulletin. Occupants cited in Australia. The Queensland edition of the Australian for July 22, 1972 carried a short mention of the sighting of what was referred to as six aliens near Kurabai, Queensland, in the early morning of July 19th. The witness was allegedly very frightened and confided in his wife, who called the Flying Saucer Research Bureau in Brisbane and related the information. After the short mention appeared in the press, the man called the Bureau himself and related the following. At about 2 a.m. on the morning of the 19th, he was on his way to work when at Kirby, uh, he became aware of about six objects on the passenger side of the road. The six objects became figures as he approached. They were a soft gray in color, and as he came even closer, five of the figures turned away. The remaining one stepped out toward the road and put out his hand. The witness tried to determine the features of the remaining figure and was surprised to see that, although he was not helmeted, his face was covered with a, quote, sort of faceted covering, end quote. He compared the face to a diamond coming to a point with no features visible. 
The man had been traveling at about 45 miles per hour when he first sighted the figures, but after seeing the faceless figure and spotting a large, solid, silvery object on the opposite side of the road, adjacent to or possibly touching the power lines, he accelerated his car and got away as quickly as he could. At the place where the object was seen are our new high-tension power lines. During the sighting, the man said he kept hearing a strange noise that he could best describe as pedoing doing. <laughs> pedoing doing. I. I'm, um, I don't, I, 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 I'm struggling here. I'm going to take a swig of water, uh, to compose myself, but it literally says padoing doing. Yeah. Padoing doing, etc. It gradually faded out as he proceeded along the road, but he could still hear it when he arrived at Kirby railway station. Uh, I apologize if I'm saying Kirby wrong. I'm assuming I am. The foregoing information was furnished by APRO member Lindsay McKeon, and we hope to make direct contact with the witness in this case. Follow-ups. Um, so in the January-February 1973 edition of the APRO Bulletin, there is a follow-up. On page one, column one of the July-August 1972 bulletin, details of an occupant case near Kirby, Queensland, Australia, based on press reports, were presented. APRO requested that field investigator, Lindsay McKeon of Brisbane, attempt to look into the matter via the local UFO research organization. The following information was obtained in a recent letter from McKeon. After a long delay, I have finally been able to contact the local UFO group regarding the Kirby sighting. Unfortunately, the witness refuses to cooperate further, even with the local group. Mr. McKeon also said that the local group had very little information to add to the original story, except that the Department of Civil Aviation and the RAFF reported no radar contact on the night in question. The Southern Electrical Authority of Queensland noticed no abnormal power drain from their high-tension lines. The witness was hazy on the shape of the object due to the short duration of the sighting, but estimates its length to be about 80 feet twice the length of a nearby house. No marks were in evidence on the ground when the area was later examined. The faceted covering was clearly some kind of helmet, but in the short time he saw the figures, he wasn't able to determine if any facial features existed between the facets. There are only two changes to be made in the original report. The figures were a soft cream color and not gray, and the figure which stepped out toward the road did not raise its hand. As previously reported, the object was solid and silvery and gave off no light. It's kind of... kind of... bummer that it didn't raise its hand, but, you know, whatever. Going back to the July-August 1972 edition of the bulletin in a article titled those Iowa craters in early July of this year, 
unusual-appearing depressions began showing up in soybean fields in the state of Iowa. The Des Moines Register, Des Moines, Iowa, carried a brief article about the craters at the Mervyn Teague Farm at Story City and the Donald Flaku Farm at Goldfield. Investigator William Atchison saw the story and went to visit the Teague Farm. However, Mr. Teague had cultivated through the crater area, and there was little evidence left. While Atkinson was still at the farm, a call came in for Mr. Teague from Jerry Dean of Lawrence, Iowa. Mr. Dean said that he, too, had found mysterious markings in his soybean fields. Mr. Teague handed the telephone to Mr. Atkinson, who got the basic information, then told Mr. Dean that he would start for Lawrence immediately. When he arrived at the Dean Farm, Atkinson was taken to the field to examine the craters. There were two of them, one approximately one yard across, the other a little smaller. The soybeans were withered and yellowed in, the, in an area approximately 30 yards in diameter. Clods of dirt were found around the crater areas as if the dirt had been pulled out of the crater and dropped. In the center of the largest crater, which was approximately 24 to 30 inches deep, was a hole approximately 2 inches across which penetrated the earth to a depth of about 3 to 4 feet in a gradual spiral, the sides of which were quite smooth. This was determined when Mr. Dean and Mr. Atkinson excavated the hole. Apparently, they they know how to excavate things. Good on them. I, this is I, that's a good skill to have. Mr. Dean said he felt the crater was made on Thursday, July sixth, at seven thirty p.m. That day, Mrs. Dean was in the kitchen when the room was suddenly lit up. The light failed. The telephone receiver jumped off the phone and lit on the counter. A loud pop was heard, and a few seconds later, the lights came back on. The phone functioned normally also. There was a storm in the area, but no thunder or lightning. Further investigation of the bean field revealed a huge clod of dirt on the ground approximately 30 feet southeast of the largest crater. It was roughly two by one feet, and in the middle of it was an impression which resembled that which would be made if one pressed a bowl, bottom down, into the dirt. It was split in two, and when the men attempted to pick it up, it fell apart. Like the clods in and around the crater, it was dry and crumbling, not at all resembling the other soil in the field, which was fairly damp. Because of space limitations, we will not deal with each one of the crater incidents separately because they, the craters, were all generally the same size, the same distance from each other, and the surrounding soybean plants gave the same appearance, that of having been withered. However, another set of craters came to light on the Leslie Poling farm at Boone, Iowa. And Mr. Poling called Atkinson, who proceeded to investigate. Unfortunately, in most of these cases, the principals had not noted the exact date that the craters were found or that the attending phenomenon took place. 
However, Mr. Poling related the incident to Mr. Atkinson, which allegedly took place a night or two prior to finding the craters on his farm. At 9.30 p.m., around the 15th of July, a, quote, white sheet of light, quote, end quote, illuminated the kitchen. A boom was heard, and one, and one of the kitchen windows shattered, scattering glass across the 15-foot room. Another window cracked. The television went off for about 10 seconds. The next day, the craters were found 250 yards out into the bean field in a straight line with the kitchen windows. In the smallest crater, which was slightly less than a yard across, a two-inch diameter hole was found, which went down to a depth of 19 inches. The hole then turned and ran parallel to the ground for approximately 19 inches and then came to an abrupt stop. As the press ran stories on the various crater locations, private individuals called to tell of their experiences at the time. A day or two prior to the finding of the Slaku sighting, a Mr. Shaw was sitting at home in the late evening but a flash of light illuminated the yard outside and the inside of the house. The craters in Slaku's field turned out to be between 250 and 300 yards in a direct line from the windows of the Shaw house, which were illuminated by the light. In the case of the Feig craters, a neighbor, Mrs. Bowl, said that a night or two prior to the discovery of the craters, she had been in bed heard a tremendous crash, which woke her up. She saw no light, but felt paralyzed. She drifted off to sleep, woke up an hour later, but could not get up, still feeling strange. Two more hours of sleep, and she woke up and got up, but feeling very shaky. There was no damage to the property. The bedroom windows where she slept were, again, 250 yards in a direct line from the craters in Teague's field. At the time publicity was given to the craters, one of the farmers scooped up some of the dirt and sent it to the BioSA laboratory in Ames, Iowa. Dr. Robert Bowman who analyzed the soil samples, said that his preliminary tests revealed that the craters had been made by lightning strikes. At about this time, soil samples arrived in Tucson, which had been taken from the Dean Farm, and they were turned over to Dr. Walter... Wow, this name. Um, Dr. Walter W. Walker... <laughs> It's kind of like Brian O'Brien, the the guy who had the uh, headed the um, um, O'Brien uh, committee thing that they the mock committee thing that they did uh, in 1966 that we covered in the 66 episode. It, like this is this is taking it to an extreme. Dr. Walter W. Walker, APRO's consultant in metallurgy. Dr. Walker, an expert in uh, fulgurites, which are artifacts resulting from the fusion of rock or sand during lightning strikes, said that the silvery or white-colored dust which adhered to the soil in the craters was not caused by lightning strikes. The absence of fulgurites led him to that conclusion. A spectrograph of the dust showed it 
uh, it to be basically the same as that of the soil to which it clung. He deduced that sudden and intense heat caused the burning out of organic material, leaving the residual whitish dust. Mr. Walker is well qualified to offer an opinion on this, as he has written several papers on lightning strikes to the ground and is considered an expert in this area. In summation, it would appear that we do have a real mystery on our hands. In all cases, intense light seemed to have been manifested a short time before the actual discovery of the craters. Although in each case the soybean fields are surrounded by oats and or cornfields, the craters appear only in soybean fields. Although it was impossible to determine in the case of the Mervyn T craters, all the other craters had holes in the middle of them. As if coarse samples had been taken, and all contained the whitish deposit. In no instance were there any tracks leading to or from the craters. In all cases, the soybeans recovered and continued to flourish after a few days had passed. All the farmers in the area who viewed the craters had ruled out lightning as the cause, being familiar with the effects of lightning strikes to the ground. That's a, that's a weird-ass case. This one is... Um, this one's interesting. 1886 Venezuelan incident studied. This is from the July-August 1972 issue again. The following letter was published in the December 18, 1886 edition of Scientific American. It came to APRO's attention over a year ago through British Representative Anthony Pace. Mr. Nick Turner, a Birmingham University student and friend of Mr. Pace, came across the letter which reads, Curious Phenomenon in Venezuela, to the editor of the Scientific American. The following brief account of a recent strange meteorological occurrence may be of interest to your readers as an addition to the list of uh, electrical eccentricities. During the night of the 24th of October last, which was rainy and tempestuous, a family of nine persons sleeping in a hut a few leagues from Maracabo were awakened by a loud humming noise and a vivid, dazzling light which brilliantly illuminated the interior of the house. The occupants, completely terror-stricken and believing, as they relate, that the end of the world had come, threw themselves on their knees and commenced to pray, but their devotions were almost immediately interrupted by violent vomitings and in and extensive swellings commenced to appear in the upper parts of their bodies, this being particularly noticeable around the face and lips. It is to be noted that the brilliant light was not accompanied by a sensation of heat, although there was a smoky appearance and a peculiar smell. The next morning the swellings had, had subsided, leaving upon the face and body large black areas, no special pain was felt until the ninth day, when the skin peeled off and these blotches were transformed into virulent raw sores. The hair of the head fell upon the side, which happened to be underneath when the phenomenon occurred. 
the same side of the body being, in all nine cases, the more seriously injured. The remarkable part of the occurrence is that the house was in, was uninjured, all doors and windows being closed at the time. No trace of lightning could afterward be observed in any part of the building, and all the sufferers unite in saying that there was no detonation, but only the loud humming already mentioned. Another curious attendant circumstance is that the trees around the house showed no sign of injury until the ninth day, when they suddenly withered, almost simultaneously with the development of the sores upon the bodies of the occupants of the house. This is perhaps a mere coincidence, but it is remarkable that the same susceptibility to electrical effects with the same lapse of time, should be observed in both animal and vegetable organisms. I have visited the sufferers, who are now in one of the hospitals of the city, and although their appearance is truly horrible, yet it is hoped that in no case will the injuries prove fatal. Sign, Warner Calgill, U.S. Consulate, Maracabo, Venezuela, November 7th, 1886. Struck by the similarity between the report and modern-day UFO reports of UFOs and close-encounter UFO reports, APRO attempted to obtain further information and to have the report evaluated by scientists. Venezuelan representative Ascold Ladonco was unable to find any local press reports due to the fact that no real newspapers were being published in Venezuela in 1886. Dr. John C. Monday, APRO consultant in biophysics, requested cooperation from the Department of State. A letter dated July 14, 1971, from Dr. Milton O. Gustafson, diplomatic records specialist in the Legislative, Judicial, and Diplomatic Records Division of the National Archives and Records Service, General Services Administration stated that, quote, a search of dispatches from United States consuls in Maracabo, 1886, among the general records of the Department of State and the Maracabo Consular Post Records among the Foreign Service Post Records of the Department of State has not revealed any information relating to a meteorological phenomenon on November 17th, 1886 in that region, end quote. During his recent stay in Tucson, APRO approached Dr. Philip Morrison on the subject. Dr. Morrison, who is the book reviewer for the Scientific American and has a passive interest in UFOs, requested a search for possible additional correspondence from Mr. Cowgill and other issues of the Scientific American, but nothing further has been found as far as APRO knows. Consequently, APRO is now prepared to release the evaluations of its consultants. In his preliminary evaluation, Dr. Horace C. Dudley, consultant in radiation physics, noted that the report, quote, coincides rather well with certain reports which have appeared over the past 10 years. The writer of the report was using the then popularized term electricity as an undefinable quote-unquote something. 
His report coincides exactly as would be expected if persons or trees were exposed to a heavy dose of penetrating ionizing radiation, perhaps a mixture of microwaves, gamma, and or x-rays. Observation of such biological effects due to x-rays and radium were not reported until about 1905, end quote. Dr. Dudley also observed that Quote, Maxwell's uh, equations postulated that the light was an electromagnetic wave phenomenon, 1864. Hertz experimentally proved it with rather long penetrating EM waves in 1884. The electron was not discovered until 1896, and electricity as uh, electron flow was not generally accepted even in 1940. End quote. Although in his first preliminary evaluation, Dr. Dudley called the report perhaps one of the most important early reports of direct contact of humans with UFOs, end quote. He later suggested that natural phenomenon could also explain the incident. Quote, at least it should be considered as an alternative, end quote, he wrote. Noting that the Venezuelan case took place during a stormy period, Dr. Dudley observed that, quote, ball lightning is a phenomenon that is most often observed during stormy weather and recently explained on the basis of magnetohydrodynamic theory. It may be postulated that the effects observed in the people and the plants in Venezuela resulted from ionizing radiation produced in self-contained gaseous electrical system, plasma, which generated a rather wide spectrum of radiation, visible, camera, x-ray, and or microwave, end quote. In any case, concluded Dr. Dudley, the description given in 1886 of the radiation effects is certainly a classical example of keen observation describing an event which had no controlled scientific counterpart for more than a decade. The report by Dr. Benjamin Sawyer, APRO consultant in medicine, is reproduced below. This is a most impressive report. One, it is by a man presumably intelligent, an employee of the U.S. Foreign Service, who was interested enough in it to follow the case by a hospital visit. Two, it was communicated to and published by the Scientific American. It is to be noted that this magazine published reports of this sort far more frequently in the past than they do now, though the letters, column, and the section, 50 and 100 years ago, often still contain such items of curiosa, and was probably published in this column in 1886. The pathological symptoms and signs related are characteristic of burns which, in general, regardless of source, produce these effects. Burns are classified thermal, chemical, mechanical, radiation. The radiation can roughly be divided into ultraviolet ray, infrared, microwave sources, sources, radar, ultrasound, and finally, x-ray, and x-ray like, uh, like wave band sources. The most appealing conjecture leads first to ultraviolet exposure and then to microwave, finally beta and gamma x-ray radiation. The pathology is interesting. Sudden onset of vomiting and edema, swelling, 
very frequently occurs with microwave exposure, though it is not by any means consistent in this. It does not produce desquamation and epilation, i.e. skin peeling and hair loss. The black areas are likely to have been an uh, incident to area of severe erythemia and subsequent intradermal bleeding, which in nine days would appear very dark colored or black and could be produced by any radiation source. After the skin loss, secondary infection occurs. This, then, is the appearance of any severe burn at about nine days, described accurately as virulent raw sores. The time lapse of nine days is also typical. The burn source could have been some unknown or any uh, one of the radiation sources I noted in the classification. The objections in comparing radiation sources with symptoms at the time of onset leads to several contradictions in pathological signs. Ultraviolet exposure produces no sense of heat and does not cause swelling and vomiting on even intense exposure. Microwave exposure frequently produces edema and nausea, but the skin and tissue damage occurs at planes of structural discontinuity where structural density varies widely, i.e. skin to clothing, etc. Ultraviolet exposure, even intense as it must be in this case, if it were the source, does not produce sensations at the time of exposure and practically never causes hair loss, nor do any of the other sources produce hair loss except x-ray-like radiation and other sources of hard radiation. Any of them could produce the plant effects noted and perhaps exfoliation in many circumstances which might be conjectured. It is mentioned that the hair fell off on the side that happened to be underneath. Underneath what? Head or the source of the radiation? One can only suppose that the writer meant direct exposure rather than the opposite side of the body to the side of the direct exposure, though this is equivocally stated. It is to be noted that this was accompanied, or was a perceivable light source, dazzling light and brilliant illumination. Color is not mentioned, i.e. red, purple, or white. It is likely ordinary light would accompany ultraviolet or infrared radiation, but not likely with microwave or ultrasound sources. The report from Dr. Mundy follows. A. The report suggests, but does not specify, the light was inside the house, only that it illuminated the interior. B. Injuries were most serious, quote, upon the side which, had, which happened to be underneath when the phenomenon occurred, end quote. Since it is difficult to accept that injury would be most serious on the side away from the phenomenon, it is presumed the author in saying underneath meant the side toward and under the phenomenon. C. The reported injuries are suggestive of damage by ionizing radiation, far ultraviolet or shorter wavelengths. However, ionizing radiation in Tense enough to cause vomiting and swelling at the time of the incident would probably have caused death within a few days. Yet, the author claimed they were in hospital more than three weeks afterward. 
long wave, i.e. infrared, microwave, or radio wave radiation, is contradicted by the statement that the, quote, light was not accompanied by a sensation of heat, end quote. However, in the traumatic circ... However, in traumatic circumstances, there is the possibility that a sensation of heating and burning might go unnoticed. More data are needed in order to decide on the cause of the injuries. D. The features of the phenomenon and the injuries it apparently caused suggest an unusual phenomenon. Perhaps it was ball lightning. The possibility of ball lightning should be examined by a ball lightning expert. Um... Apparently they had those back in the day, but even in 1972, we didn't really know a whole hell of a lot. We knew some. Since the phenomenon is as yet unidentified and apparently was aerial in character, it can be labeled UFO. However, this label should not be construed as allowing the possibility of extraterrestrial involvement. The existing data do not warrant do not at all warrant speculation in the direction of ETH. Rather, they indicate some natural phenomenon whose characteristics at present are only vaguely known. What at first appeared to be physical injury caused by a UFO, which would certainly be the earliest on record, now appears explainable by ball lightning phenomenon. Even so, the reported injuries are the earliest and probably the most extensive on record related to ball lightning. This report is still an open question. Comments from other scientists would be welcome by APRO. That's an interesting one. A very interesting one. Full of a lot of scientific language, but um, yeah, like... Is it ball lightning? Was it ball lightning? What kind of radiation were they exposed to? It appears to be ionizing, but, you know, there are there are certain elements that don't totally fit. But, um, yeah, that that uh, that was an interesting case. And that's going to do it for this episode. Um, thank you all for listening. Uh, thank you all for making it through this one, if you if you truly honestly did, because. Yeah, it's just uh, it was something I threw together that I, that I hoped that uh, you all would dig. So thank you for joining me. Um, I'm going to keep the closing short this week. Um, if you, you know, want to follow along, you want to find the Patreon and all that, hit the link tree in the show notes. Sources are in the show notes. Uh, special thanks to Floats for the use of their song UFO as the theme for our podcast special thanks to spencer worth davis for editing the episodes special thanks to megan lagerberg for our logo and to the great desdemona for our t-shirt designs and finally don't forget to look up because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies or along the highway in new mexico in gray we trust
Duvid Media.